Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tunya, the producer with our hosts Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Hey, Art Grind listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Art Grind podcast. We have a New York-based legend, Bert Silverman, for you today as hosts Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones takes a journey through the artist's long and storied past. You will hear his approach to creating and his experience through the lens of a respected instructor, painter, and illustrator. Just a heads up, though, that the interview will begin in the middle of a conversation, so just go with it and enjoy. So without further ado, here is Bert Silverman. I think that the the kind of burden that art has not had to to bear in terms of its uh, socio-political importance or even just its emotional, spiritual importance is overblown. And I think it's a compensation for the realization that it's less important in, in our culture in a way. And I hope this doesn't sound really weird from someone who keeps making paintings all the time. And I have no idea why I do that. Uh, and less so now is, as I am become less involved in, in both the selling of art and the teaching of art. Uh, but but I think, for example, movies are far more powerful in terms of of, of directing uh, our social awareness, our sense of what's called polity. You know, the organization of people into a, a, a city or state or whatever, and 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 even the theater, even uh, uh, stage plays which seems kind of antique and people can have an electronic version of that. But there is something to be learned from both of those experiences. And I certainly, for book writing, which is suffering, of course, because people don't read much anymore. There's a small and smaller cohort of people who buy books uh, because it takes time. It takes kind of a considered understanding. It takes time to flip back in the page and say, wait a minute, didn't I read that back there? And so it becomes a far more developing experience, just as I think painting has become less, um, if you want, considered, less thought about. We take the experience on the surface because it is a surface, a series of graphic explorations. One of the things that I found interesting about all of that is that time, it takes time to look at a painting with an image in it because it takes time to discover all of the things, not only how the image is made, which is which can be done with non-object painting, how did, I, how did they do that remarkable design and how did they do that? But what does it mean? It's not just the fascination with 
the device with the, what's called the technique, with the means. But what's the end of that? What's, where does that, even that in long-term look, even that staring, a wonderful photograph I saw of a woman staring at a painting by uh, a big Pollock painting, okay? And, and you can get involved with all the interstices and the woven forms and all of those things. And it can even lead to some kind of fanciful rumination. But that's the key. The fantasy leads to an internal experience rather than an external one or a combination of both of those. When you think about, for example, a classic and kind of cliche example of the, the Night Watch or the sortie of Captain Benning Cook, which is the real title of the painting, and you can sit and wonder, oh, all of those wonderful portraits that emerge, the light and dark patterns. And what is that little girl doing going the wrong direction? Why does she, and why did Rembrandt put that in? And what, what is it about that experience that becomes more engrossing in a way? And then you begin to say, well, what are all these people marching for? And it has a curious, I think, anti-war quality, although I could read that into it. It's all these funny old men in their, in their uniforms. And how is it relevant today with all these guys pumped up with their, with their armaments, ready to do battle with what enemy they have configured in their head? Just as the experience, these were militia people, by the way, formed during the Spanish wars with everybody in the 16th century and they were volunteer groups <laughs> right yeah you know you've seen that painting live right yes the night watch so what struck me was actually every single time i lived in amsterdam for six months and every time i was in the Rijksmuseum, which was actually all the time because that's basically all i did in amsterdam that room was the night watch was packed so it, it is still relevant. Like you could barely go, get near enough this enormous painting to see all of it because every single time there was a huge crowd in front of it. it the interesting thing uh, is that because it is images that are both real and fake in this sense, it's a fiction. Like a piece of writing is a fiction. We know it's it's made up, it's fantasy. It's not the real thing as in what happens, unfortunately, with a lot of contemporary sensibilities about making real paintings, is that the closer it gets to the photographic authenticity, that becomes the goal or the, the sense of its completeness. But one of the things that I find important is that you understand that it's made up at the same time that it seems very real. And so you caught in a kind of interesting, uh, I guess, cognitive disconnect. It's or a conflict of some kind. Is what am I looking at? Something that some real people, but I know it's fake at the same fake in the sense that it was put together by somebody's hand, by some lunatics that they're making it. 
Do you, do you think they are it, to do this for your life to create these slow images with stroke by stroke? Do you think it it there would be some lunacy involved in that pursuit? Well, the only thing I can say is when you're working alone a long time, your head gets filled with all kinds of noise that a psychologist might say is <laughs> somewhat like a hallucinatory. And that I think, listen, my, let me put it aside and say something about my wife, who's a, a very brilliant psychologist and a, a kind of unique person in that she's a logical thinker. And she feels that so many of us, and this is not a, a professional kind of mystique, that we and other people have com commented on it. We indulge in giant fantasies in our life, starting at bottom, if you will, if I don't get into too much trouble, with religion. It is a, an idea, fantasy about an, a, a, a human being coming back to life and then becoming a deity. Okay, it's a fundamental assumption that we all accept. Everybody wears those little crucifixes. Ninety percent of the country is is a religious or religious observant country. So it produces a fantasy mentality. We're open to all kinds of suggestions. Listen, Marvel comics, which used to be a bizarre little kind of adventure and all the things that kids dream of doing that they can't do has suddenly making movies that adults go to. How curious is that? How dangerous is that? Uh, yeah, I totally agree. And yet, and this is the, this is the dichotomy of my own thinking. We all need that. We all need that break from reality to explore something which is or or to be able to respond to something which is not organized in a logical sense i always felt like religion might for so many years it was just you know it did a lot of good a lot of bad but it was the only way that people had of understanding the universe like the universe is so complex and it's so difficult to actually under, you know, to make sense of it. And I think religion is just, it was the only structure that people had for hundreds of years. And now we have other structures. So, you know, some people still choose that one and some people choose other ones. How do you confront the experience that we, most people do it in a very practical way. They know that <clears throat> some kind of process will have a given impact. Some kind of event will make at the the result, either one or two or three possibilities. And people explore that in their everyday life because they have to survive. But you can't survive only on fantasy except in your for a monastery. Look, <laughs> 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 I make up stories, okay? This painting here behind me is is one uh, I don't can you see the can you see the thing? Okay. Yes. I've painted that theme now for the last 10 years on and off. 
Uh, I manufactured a situation. For example, I did not go into a strip joint and, and paint the women who actually did it. But I did encounter a, a, a model of the Art Students League who had, been, who had done a six-month gig as a stripper, okay? And uh, so I was curious as to what happened when I had her posed in a, uh, what can we call it, a G-string, okay? And she said, I said, you know, what, what, what was the experience like? I mean, I, I can't imagine it from, you know, how, how, how it affected you. Uh, and she stopped for a minute. Then she said, well, I cried myself to sleep a lot. So that's a summary judgment by one individual, and it varies throughout the whole range of people who were involved in it. So I took the, the, the ego-based notion that I really understood what these women were like. But then I decided it's possible if I just, that's one person felt that way. And that's what the image is on her face. That's something I noticed about. And, and, and the thing I did it because it was like, you're doing all these <clears throat> Bougaro nudes, Bougaro, you know, the, the, great, the great painter of flesh. And he was very good at it. There were other people also who did it. But it was always female flesh and little babies, cuddly little <laughs> kids. And it's, it's, it's probably the poison that made Picasso do what he did. And so if it, if it keeps on being painted that way, without some reinventing of why you're doing it. Uh, and so I said to myself very early on, uh, all these perfect bodies that are being painted and all of these enticing, very pleasurable bodies from a male point of view, I'm not sure how many women respond to that, although we don't know because there are a lot of gay women, you know, lesbian women, and that might be appealing to them as well. But it's just a surface kind of stimulation again. You know, it's one set of responses that, that are possible from human beings. The erotic one is very powerful. And believe me, I'm not putting it down because I do like painting the female form for whatever contorted male supremacist things are still in my head. But I said, let's make this beautiful body in a circumstance that's disreputable. That's not so nice. You know, that, that tends to say, well, wait, wait a minute. I, I, I can't enjoy this as much because it's tangled up with something else. It's tangled up with another feeling about it. You know, something that's Socially not so acceptable, but even if it weren't a social issue, it's like, do I want that? 
But I want that experience, which I know is manipulative. You see, that the strip joint is, manipulates your sense of desire and, 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 and frustration. But here, in, with Bougaro, we can enjoy the fantasy without admitting it to ourselves. We can enjoy the fantasy of the erotic stimulation. So I say to myself, aside from the other thing is that women have been objectified by it. They've so so you ma- see Bouguereau as almost like a covert pornographer in a way, do you think? Yes, yes, for very wealthy English uh, patrons. Absolutely. I, I, I would agree. Yeah, for sure. So what do you look for in, I, I loved your description of Night's Watch, like, there is beautiful imagery and then you notice the little girl or maybe the dog and you start asking questions and you go deeper. What is it in art that you look for that makes you want to go deeper with an image? What, can, what takes something, I guess, better said from just surface appeal, which could be pornography, you know, to just manipulating basic feelings to actually going deeper with an image, what, what's that quality? It, it, it's not just with the nude, it's with all pictures. I mean, the ton of, of portraits that are made of, of, of women uh, and very attractive young women in, in a kind of idealized, fantasized circumstance. Sometimes it's like, uh, oh, it was done by one a guy. Suddenly, got his name. It's a Swedish painter. Did nudes in the woods. So when so we have uh, nudes in the water, and we have nudes floating in bathtubs, uh, which are uh, slightly re- resonant of other less desirable sides. And all of that is is manufacturing a content. So, by the way, Bert and Marshall, you too, do you guys feel like uh, Bougarou, who I've, I mean, I have mixed feelings about him, but do you feel like he was just kind of a pornographer for the, you know, the, well, the wealthy, or do you think he actually transcends that and, you know, it's... Oh, look, I'm not, I can't, I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm, I don't, to say I don't get it is wrong. I, I don't respond to that that way. Because the primary dominant image is so powerfully the female form, and it look he did paintings of, of you know poor poor young kids as well and mother and child things, but they were patently sentimental. I don't think he was a very interesting painter. I'm much more interested in a in a in a uh, uh, the guy who was part of what was called the uh, it was parallel to Impressionism, but it was paintings that were done of, of the impoverished, the poor, the underprivileged, and so on. Uh, and it was it spread all throughout the world, from Russia to the United States, and spanned every country in between. And one of the interesting painters in the group is uh, a, a guy, J- J- Jules. The Page. Oh yeah, Jules Bastien Le Page. Mm-hmm. Who? And Joan of Arc at the Met. 
L-E-P-A-G-E. Not well known, but if you search him, you Google his work and you see there's something fascinating. For example, one of the things he did, which was which struck me because I've done similar things of parallel people together, but it's a uh, a couple. The guy is stretched out on the grass beside this woman who looks pathetically played out. And there it's a lunch break on a field worker. And her husband, of course, is, is plastic. He's drunk and he's lean. And she who has carried the burden of everything because her husband is useless. And so you say, oh, is that what that painting's about? I thought it was just this couple after they had sex. <laughs> but I mean, they were, he did wonderful paintings of older people, of kids, and so on, that compared to Bouguereau are really a world's apart, again, for me. Other people don't respond that way. I'm, I'm, at peace with that. That's not a problem. It's just talking about what I'm looking for when I make these images, when I make these paintings. Well, it's interesting you say that because um, I've been so excited to talk to you because I really, you're one of my, um, I don't know, maybe you could say heroes. Like I remember seeing your imagery quite young at the Art Students League and really seeing you as set apart from a lot of the stuff I was seeing and, and someone I bought books and followed a bit. And I was, so I was telling some of my students that I was going to interview you and they, and one of them was saying, you should ask him about how he paints people in a very different way from others. Um, he sees you as having a real empathy for the model and like a real sense of, I guess, anti-Bougereau, you know, like it's, you're getting at something that is humane and it's done with a lot of pathos and you painted people of all different backgrounds and uh, ages and these things. Could you, it, could you talk a little bit about what guides your imagery when you're painting people? I can't explain that, Marshall. I, I oh. really... Uh, it's like somebody asks you, hey, you have a nice tone of voice. <laughs> and, and say, how do you do that? Uh, possibly it comes from very early on when, as a kid, uh, this, this would be an environmental kind of uh, understanding if that's even real. But I grew up with uh, a, a, a whole cohort of people in Brooklyn who believed that their team would somehow or other, the baseball team, the Brooklyn Dodgers, would somehow or other win the pennant. And they, and they never did in Brooklyn. They had to move to Los Angeles and do it, which pissed me off a lot. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was everything kids hoped for, you know, the, the promise of, of justice, that the, 
the good guys would be rewarded. Oh my God. So Bert, I have, I have a question that's kind of relevant to that. What it, I mean, you were one of these kids who, you know, hoping that the good guys would, would be rewarded. Right now it's 50, 60 years later. And I, I realized after the first time we talked that you're basically, you're exactly what I want to be. Like, um, like, like, if it, like, if I make it to ninety three, I want to be you. I want to still be painting and living in a multi generational home where everyone kind of loves each other and tries to make it work. And and those are the only two things I want. I, I feel like everything else is, you know, maybe a bonus if it happens. But what did you want back then, other than for the baseball team to win? You know, I wanted to be a, a better athlete, as a matter of fact, because that was a way of of gaining acceptance in a community of peers. And I remember I suffered some minor humiliation when I was in a pickup game. It, uh, it was not with a baseball bat in, in you know, the field. It was in a hard surface in a schoolyard, uh, concrete environment with a stick, a broomstick and a Spalding ball. Spalding made these wonderful rubber balls. And that was the, the way we played baseball. And But if if I was allowed to, to join one of the teams, they said, okay, Bert, you'll pay here in, in, in the left field. <laughs> and they only put me with two left fielders because they knew I didn't catch the ball for a while. <laughs> so, so that's, you know, that's a childhood kind of, aspiration. But I, I suspect that I, in a way, I did want everybody wants to belong to some group to gain some peer sense of who they are. Uh, and except for the small group of people that uh, uh, were, I guess, part of the, the, the a very early small gallery called the Davis Gallery, in New York, there were half a dozen or so artists, all of whom knew one another from one way, usually from school experience. And one of whom was still my friend, Harvey Dynastin. He's great. And, and we, we go back only a mere 76 years. <laughs> That's so great. And we both still relatively with all the marbles, and we're still painting. So, you know, that's, that in itself is, is wonderful. I couldn't have asked for survival better than that. We've been, and he, you, you mentioned the, the Montgomery experience. It was Harvey, actually, who initiated that. Uh, because, and I've repeated this before, the phone call we were talking, we, the, the boycott had been going on for about six months or less. It was it was early, it was late in 1955, and this was February of '56. And Harvey and I had been reading accounts about it in the New York Post, which was then a very liberal newspaper, and articles written by a, a journalist named Murray Kempton who is also a kind of very effete, but very interesting, not quite liberal writer, but uh, elitist in the sense he came from a very cultivated background. And he was, uh, 
he was always very selective in what he chose to write about it. He wrote these kind of Tom Wolfe type devastating articles about the governance in Montgomery, the white citizens councils, the white legislature, and so on. And these these this whole town, which was the first coherent uh, demonstration by black people in Jim Crow history. A whole 50,000 residents of the town. And we'd both been reading about it. And, and, and in the middle of a conversation with Harvey on the phone, he said, let's go there and draw it. And I stopped for a millisecond and I said, yeah, let's. Wow. And that's how, that's how this, this thing started. Uh, and we went with the most oblivious kinds of unawareness of how dangerous it was. Most people didn't realize the town, as a matter of fact, was subject to a lot of violence. And it wasn't written about. Uh, there was a, an organization which is still in existence called the Southern, <clears throat> the Southern Poverty Law Association, which a group of lawyers who got together to try to protect black and Jewish rights in what used to be called the land of the free and the home brave, which is Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, and it was, they'd, they'd experienced bombing, threats. Uh, there was a lot of incipient violence, but none was reported. And very little uh, that actually did happen was reported. So there we were sailing in these two, you know, kind of naive young men sailing into it a place where we thought, aha, we'll just go and record the whole thing, right? The interesting thing was that we were very soon after we had no coherent kind of plan what we were going to do, where we were going to go, what we were going to draw. It was kind of sort of let it happen. And the, the, uh, the people of Montgomery sort of picked up the slack for us. They invited us to these church rallies that were done every two or three days to, to buoy up uh, people's uh, enthusiasm or courage and so on. Uh, and we were invited into people's homes to, to, to interview them, to make drawings. And we realized soon it was the protest, you could view it from a kind of reportage point of view. You know, you You'd have drawings of people marching or you'd have protests look and so on. And we decided that it was really about individuals. And so we were we did drawings of a lot of people in their own intimate spaces, as well as the more obvious ones, as well as the things that were happening on a social level. The church uh, rallies with Martin King, in fact became involved reluctantly. He really didn't want to get, get mixed up in it. It's interesting. And that just the suddenly be, I guess, part of the protest by making speeches. He eventually <clears throat> was put on trial. And I think that that sealed his sense of identity with what was happening. I was not to say that I understood anything about what he experienced and thought or felt beforehand, but just from a superficial point of view. So 
that was that was Montgomery. It was also challenging on a another level, on an artistic level, because we'd come out of experiences that were not dissimilar, which is happening now. It's a lot of people learn to draw in a very, very controlled environment in an art school with a, somebody posing unmoving relatively for two, two and a half, three hours. And you had opportunities to just do wonderful kinds of rendering. And it was, it's, it's a very important part of learning. I, you know, I'm not putting it down, but suddenly we had come out of that experience with very skilled drawings, you know, uh, uh, and both of us were, <coughs> I guess, relatively young for the, because suddenly all those nice drawings, those beautiful rendered drawings are no good anymore. We had to go back on, Drawing not only rapidly, but becoming at least to some extent evocative. Something was happening that you had to grasp at the same time that you were drawing. And it it changed the look of our art, both of us. Uh, and maybe I could show you a drawing that was done that I have on. Okay. And this very elegant little selective line and the whole thing. Okay. Forget about it. You're drawing outside. You are drawing people marching or stomping in the church or where <clears throat> you're sitting in their home while they're moving around. And so it's, it was the beginning of what became a kind of an alternate. Uh, career for ourselves. I mean, we both got involved with illustration because of it. And we, I think, I mean, both of us was, were then sent to places that we wouldn't have gone on our own. Harvey went to the Poor People's March in Washington. Uh, and I got sent overseas. I, I mean, it was like a whole very different kind of training in a way that that was very important. So Marshall asked before about a certain quality in my painting. I don't know whether all of these elements are part of the mix. Something that forces you to be clearer in what you want or more incisive or sharper in your vision. <clears throat> All of those elements go into it. Uh, and then again, I still, you know, it's, it's funny because in this head, I'm trying to make it real, okay? And at the same time, it's just, people look at it and say it's painting, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's the, the cognitive disconnect. It's yeah, that's a real person, but you made that, right? You know, Bert, I actually really like what you said what, earlier when you were responding to Marshall, when you said it's kind of like when people ask about, you know, the tone in your voice or the pitch of your voice. I wonder if that's what our painting, anyone who's been painting for long enough, it's like the tone of their voice. And you can't really, like, it's hard to explain it, but you also can't alter it. Like, you just paint the way you paint, kind of like you talk the way you talk. True, it's true.
I think it's true anyway. Uh, I feel I feel that's one of the limitations of teaching is that people came to me because they liked what I did and they wanted to do things that looked like that. And I gave them kinds of global instruction on what to how to construct an image uh, that was not diagrammatic, that allowed you to make mistakes. In other words, if you think about a lot of, of, of I guess, the, the revival of the academic model, there's a very structured way to create form and then filled in. I am astonished at the number of things that I've seen in demonstrations online where people make an outline and then fill it in. I mean, that's coloring book. <laughs> yep, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm going to get in trouble with this whole thing, you know, because, but I'm a goddamn old man and I've decided I'm going to say what I want to <laughs> say. And, <laughs> and full speed ahead, damn the consequences, the torpedoes. Uh, it, it, it defied everything I understood. What I was talking about before about Montgomery drawings and so on. It's like the whole image and then bang, and then you refine it because, but you got the gesture, you got the movement, and you got, and even with the head, it was like, what's that form and space? What is that like? And then, and then you refine it, and then the peach, and then the nostrils, and everything else comes out if you're lucky. And all of that was a structural, I, I remember it was, I did a joint workshop with uh, Richard Schmidt. Do you know yeah. he, who he is? Yes. Sure. He's extraordinarily gifted a la prima painter. Bang, 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 boom, boom, got it. Okay. And next to him, I felt very clumsy because I kept, <laughs> I kept refining something. I said, no, I don't think that's... <laughs> You know, and the result is, as a matter of fact, is still disturbing to me because the act of painting is, and his sense of color was very appealing. It's very instantaneous. And it's like, Jesus, if I can, if I can only do something, something like that. And, and then, I, you know, that tone of voice came out. Uh, it was... That's who he was as an individual with this very, very immediate sense of response. And it doesn't permit mistakes. And mistakes are important because you don't know what's really working or what really is going to make that feeling you want last. Uh, and it's it's... Again, a, a structural issue, and how do you how do you put together the machine? And it does find limitations again with who you are as a person, the whole complex of your experience, your life experience. Uh, and I think that's what makes interesting painting. Uh, you know, I've been on a jury, many, and I tried to write something for people who submit to a competition to explain what my choices are, what governs my choice. What are my criteria? What do I use to say 
this is excellent, more excellent than your others. And it, I, it was very difficult to do because something kept creeping into the process, which was the unexpected, the, the image that you didn't think you would ever like that suddenly stood out for some unknown, unconscious reason. Or the, that layered over something else, which was, yes, I always respond to something which is well done, well constructed, and shows a lot of ability and so on. But after a while, in, in during a show with a lot of different images, all trying to do the same thing, something happens when the atypical shows up, when that voice that's not like the others. And that's sometimes hard to quantify, and it's certainly impossible to make any kind of coherent criteria for excellence. Yeah, you can have some fundamental things that you enjoy seeing. You know, some of it is, but I'm tired of seeing something that's so beautifully constructed. There's a ton of people now, hundreds of thousands of people all over the world. <laughs> I mean, hundreds of thousands is a little exaggerated. But who, com who compete in international competitions, whether it's the, the British Museum portrait thing or the, the, uh, the thing in, in Madrid, the Figurativas. Uh, the meme show, yes, and the ARC exhibition. I mean, you can see the plethora of just outright skills that 30 years ago didn't exist. And, and at the same time, I got news for you. Most of the shows are tedious. They are almost as repetitious as watching a, a, an exhibition of non-object painting. But, you know, to play devil's advocate a little bit, I actually agree with you about all, all of those shows and a lot of the work I either don't like or look looks the same. But I think it's amazing that, I, I mean, even from back when I was going to school trying to figure out painting on my own because there wasn't anyone to teach me, I think it's wonderful that so many people have all these skills. And you're probably right where the people that have something to say, there's as many or as few of them as there ever were. But I think it's amazing that I can, you know, it's amazing that so many people care enough to acquire these skills that are so difficult and unhip and, you know, the, and don't really pay much once you acquire them. Yeah, it, just to, to, to show you some kinds of contrasts. Uh, by the way, the, one of the things I always like to point out is, is the mystique of the skylight. It's terrible. It's terrible. The light changes depending on how light the cloud cover is, how if there's no cloud cover, if there's a blue sky up ahead. I don't know what color exists in that changeable environment. You have a nice career change unchanging environment, how is the painting going to be seen? Is it going to be seen in the gallery, in somebody's home? It's usually with some kind of light bulb, some kind of other experience. So when do I, when do I paint something? You know, I, can't, I draw the shades on the skylight. I got this place because it had a built-in skylight. I mean, it was, it was set up almost for a studio without even... A whisper of thinking about it. 
Right. I have a I have a question. When you and Harvey talk now, I mean, you've been friends since since high school. Um, what do you talk about now? Like you have so many years of just life experience. Um, if you, if you were on the phone with him right now, what would the conversation be about? Not very happy stuff. We're both burdened by just what what happens when you get to be an old fart like myself and himself. Uh, you know, there are there are tough things that have happened in 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 his uh, in currently with with uh, Lois, with his wife, and myself here, and we exchange, you know, little things. Actually, just call each other to know we're still alive. <laughs> hi, Harvey. Yeah, hi. How you doing? Good. Okay. Uh, about. You know about the larger world. I think it's less it's less part of our conversation than it might have been years ago. And we talk about some things in the structural nature of our current art world that is uh, sometimes disconcerting about how uh, choices are made given what what the what the current dominant aesthetic is of our time and also about specific artists that we've encountered and something if their work is interesting and uh, so it's a it's a mix of things our conversations are not as extensive as they had been in the past uh, and they are also circumscribed telephone conversations are are tough before the pandemic, we would uh, have lunch together and it would, it would be much more extensive. There were more things we got pissed off about, of course. Uh, but it's, it's changed now. I mean, we accept a lot of things as given that uh, no longer generate any reasonable discussion. Uh, so let me, uh, Harvey did a, a, an exhibition uh, online of the work he had done uh, in the two years of a year and a half of the pandemic when he was isolated. He, the, the league put it on as, a, as a, uh, an online show. Uh, and it did a lot that, was, that dealt with uh, the imminence of, of death and, and uh, the, the hope that that he felt was still possible, that we all do. Uh, I'm going to show you a painting, a couple of paintings I did during the time. You may have seen them. I don't know if you could see that one. Oh, my God. It's beautiful. Uh, Bert, could you please send us a photo of this so we could include it on the podcast website? But this painting is, again, it's something that came out of a, uh, a personal experience that uh, it's a family member who died during the pandemic, not from virus, but just from accumulated old age. <laughs> uh, but it was a signifier for me of both our circumstance generally that we all have as a kind of envelope that we live in now. Uh, where death becomes almost 
routine, and I wanted to salvage this person's death as something special and yet threatening. Uh, so that's what the painting was about. And I guess it's contradistinction to this painting. That, and I, I've never done a flower painting. <laughs> and I, 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 Very different. I mean, two. Uh, one of them was a kind of a joke. I put a, a peony in a, in a, oh, really? a bottle of oh. Poland Spring because I thought there was something about the fake Poland Spring water and the real flower. But this is just the straightforward, like, oh, that's so, I saw the, it was in a photograph <laughs> that I had taken. I was planning to do this many years ago, never did. And it just made me feel so goddamn happy. <laughs> Speaking of which, Bert, but how did you spend these, these last two years? Excuse me? Um, I, you, you made some really beautiful paintings, but what was the last two years like for you? Because I feel like the pandemic would affect someone. I mean, it, it affected everyone, but it would, it would affect someone your age more severely than it would, it would affect someone our age, where it's just a lot more dangerous for you. Yeah, well, it heightened our vulnerability. It made them feel more fragile. Even the idea now of taking a walk seems to be a minor victory, just to go outside and move around like, you know, like a person. I mean, I still have motor mobility. I can still walk uh, even as much as 100 feet. No. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm capable of, of movement, but it's just being in the world seems like a kind of rehabilitation, seems like it's suddenly... And it's interesting how necessary it is. I sometimes just go to the go outside the house and stay in the street. People must think I'm sort of, <laughs> you know, one of these demented old people. But it's just I, I remember much of the last two years when I took a walk, and I noticed how trees were so. I, I don't know, call it invigorating. There was something else about just seeing a tree in the sunlight felt like a therapy of a kind. And, you know, being able to experience the world is so essential. Everybody's written about it and talked about it. I, I'm not going to add to that. Uh, but it struck me again how I, there's a very close by, we, we're very close to Riverside Park. And it's like a block and a half away. I can walk around around the block and, and I'd be virtually in the park. And I'd go and sit and sit in the park. Like, I guess, like, <laughs> like a lot of older folks. But I, and sometimes I just stand there. And even that was during the height last year when there was a, a resurgence of, of the virus which seems to be happening periodically now. Uh, and it just seemed like something special. I can't describe it. Seeing the sky and a cloud 
and sunlight on a tree and grass growing. I looked at the grass and suddenly I said, I used to have a place in, in the country where I tended the lawn. We had a lot of lawn. It was a really terrific place. But to me, when I used to deal with grass as the grass was, was a chore, but suddenly I, during this period of time, suddenly the idea of grass, and I looked at it and I said, isn't that wonderful how that each of those little fibers grow up or it sounds dumb as hell, but it was like rediscovering something about our everyday experience that we just lose track of. You know, um, Bert, I, I, I just spent almost a month in various forms of quarantine with having COVID, the kids having COVID, myself having COVID again. And I went into a coffee shop today for the first time in a month where I've just been somewhere that what you know wasn't my apartment. And looking at all the people sitting down and reading and talking, and all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, everyone is so beautiful. And just the sunlight <laughs> going through the window. <laughs> and then as I, yeah. I was like, I, I guess the light here is really good. And then I realized that it wasn't the light. It was just, it was what you just said. Being in the outside world is so necessary. And we, and when you experience it that way, it, it suddenly comes home. You can write about it, people feeling deprived and nuts and crazy and depressed and so on. But as a personal experience, it suddenly, like I looked at the window of my, in, in my kitchen, which faces the backyard, uh, and it, it, it has a whole bunch of trees growing in it that in the springtime, it's wonderful. You see different flowers and so on. But I've noticed that at a certain time, of year, the sun in its arc penetrates full blast into this backyard. And right now, the trees are bare suddenly. And I had a, an epiphany this morning <laughs> because I looked out the window and there was sunlight on the bare birch tree. And I said, Aha, <laughs> spring is coming. <laughs> Because the earth is turning in such a way that the sun is now coming back to the backyard and the winter doesn't. <laughs> and it was like, oh, the coffee tasted better, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, spring's coming. Bart, you paint so beautifully. It's, I think you're humble when you talk about, um, you know, talking about some of these more rote schools and people not painting that way 30 years ago, but looking at what you just pulled up, that's painted better than any of those schools are turning out. And it has a depth to it as well that I can't help but think is from this way of integrity that you've lived your life. Um, and I kind of want to ask you to speak about that path. I mean, I can only imagine that it comes from a real love of painting and keeping you doing this thing at such a high level for so long. Um, is, it, is it just as simple as a love for this that keeps you doing it? That's always kept you doing it? You know, it's, it's curious because I've, I've thought about it more recently. Uh, I don't have uh, gallery representation. So one of the urges that were part of all of the 
reasons I know a lot of artists put paint, a lot of paintings together is to show them to somebody else. Say, hey, look, look what I've discovered. <laughs> and not having that and being sort of out of the, the art world more and more. I'm, uh, I, I do note, I, I haven't done any teaching, any workshops in uh, three or four years now. Uh, is it part of the natural order of things of withdrawing when you get older? I don't have as many uh, places to go except the doctors. <laughs> That's my, my big social event of the, of the week. <laughs> And when you lose a doctor, boy, that's a catastrophe. Forget about it. <laughs> uh, and so I feel less and less connected as this, this sort of operational, social part of the art world. Look, there was a, a, an exhibition organized at the Samagandhi Club. You know, and I was thinking... Uh, why not? I, you know, I don't mind being uh, part of a competition. And then I looked up and I said, I, I really don't want to be in a group exhibition anymore. And especially the Salma Gundy Club where they invite a lot or they accept a lot of people and then hang them where all the paintings are one on top of another. And it's a very, very destructive kind of exhibition space. So I decided not to enter it with a lot of shows. Uh, three years ago, <clears throat> the, or is it now four years ago, the, <clears throat> uh, the National Portrait Gallery has something called the, the, the it's a portrait competition. Oh, Outlin Boo Boo Chair yeah, something? Yeah, the Outlin yeah. Boo Chair something show was written. Uh, it was uh, uh, underwritten by somebody connected with the gallery, and they did. I think it's actually this. underwritten by BP Oil. Oh, yeah. I think no, I think it's it's underwritten by like a big um, big oil company. Oh, really? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> anyway, I decided okay, I was going to send in a painting see in competition and and see what happened and you know that it was it was a painting i did of this uh guy who who is uh, a uh, he's a contractor who eventually i became friendly with up in my country place and uh and it's a not a big painting it's about 50 52 inches high and so on, but it's a full length and the then director of the of the portrait gallery, who since uh, uh, resigned or retired, loved the idea that I submitted the painting. It gave the show a good deal of substance, of importance. And I said, "You got to be kidding! This painting is like, where is it? It's like, why did this person do that?" And when you look at it in context of all the paintings that were submitted in competition. And all of them were, without exception, 
were controlled by that kind of photographic mentality. And all of them played with the idea of scale. There's one guy submitted a, like as a 45 inch head, you know, just the head. <laughs> and it's, it's not, it's not a feeling of being lost. It's, it's like, I'm not sure what's happened to the fond hope I had 60 years ago when we put forward this exhibition from the guys at Davis Gallery uh, called A Realist View. It was accompanied by this funky photograph of all of us in jackets <laughs> on a roof. I've seen that picture. Okay. And it was an exhibition again, there were close to 100 paintings in it, a lot of interesting paintings, even in retrospect. Uh, and at the time, you know, I expressed what was a hopeful revival of this kind of understanding. Well, it didn't happen quite the way we thought. Uh, and not only did it not happen in, to us as individuals, because there's no note of that exhibition in any art record that we've come across. In fact, the only record of kind of realism was the photorealism of the 80s and the neorealism of the, of the California school that was called figurative, figurative painting. And so, you know, the new realism, which is realisms of all kind, uh, is equally distressing. So I guess that accounts for a sense of my withdrawal. And so you ask, why do I continue painting? Because there's something happens when I spend a day where I haven't put paint on a canvas. I feel like the day's been lost, that it got pissed away. And I cannot account for it. It's a disease, Marshall. It really is. Does it feel like the day only counts if you made something? Yeah. Yeah. And in your case, making something, in all of our case, making something is making something with paint. I've got the same disease. And, and, and I love seeing it happen, except I deplore it. You know, it's like I wanted to be involved in something. What's the hardest thing about being, because I, I, I feel like I have that same disease. And I've seen some negative impacts in my life from that. And I wonder for you, What's the hardest thing about being afflicted with that, <laughs> that malady? You know, it's a simple ego thing. You know, when you get rejected from somebody or when you've thought you've established this sort of reputation and you write to a, a curator at a museum and they don't answer your letter mm. ever. So those little ego rebukes, they disappear. But there are a lot of those in your life. You know, when you get a rejection that you didn't, or something happened and you would, <clears throat> you felt that all your things were terrible and you knew they were terrible anyway, and now someone told you they were terrible. 
I hate it when they're right about that stuff. <laughs> I feel like you said that you don't want to be in a group exhibition, but would you want to have a solo exhibition right now? Uh, I don't have enough work that uh, would sustain it because I've been very selective in what I've been doing. I have, in, I guess, over the last three years, I maybe have a dozen paintings. But then they are so non-saleable that I would have trouble getting gallery representation in this. Uh, one of my neighbors who thinks very highly of me, <laughs> I'm the resident famous person on the block. <laughs> he wanted me to have an exhibition. He owns one of the brownstones across the street and, he, and it, he, it's empty. Uh, at the moment and he said we have a you know the space come on, I'll show you and there's this huge couple of rooms in it you know marvelous rooms except and it's got wainscoting that are just virtually five feet high <laughs> you know and it's very hard to hang paintings in the show and I I delete with the idea why not make it an exhibition it doesn't have a commercial set up for it and it's just for people to look at and I might still do it. When he he said he got, you know, three or four people who help hang the show and bring the paintings up and so on. All, all of that. And that tickled my eye, that tickled me because it was a community-based experience that would be as <clears throat> atypical of what I guess one would think of uh, of showing work. I also had an idea. To uh, and I discussed that with uh, Harvey uh, that the two of us would have a because of our our shared experience over such a long time and the fact that we were working in a, a very compatible kind of aesthetic but very different paintings that it would be a wonderful dual exhibition. And it's possible to do it, but you know, I, if it were five years ago, I would have pursued it with a great deal of energy. Uh, I don't have that energy. It seems like an onerous task. It's got a lot of, first of all, it needs funding. And I would go at it with full tilt, find, finding money and, and uh, uh, some kind of uh, uh, environment that would be receptive to it. As a matter of fact, five years ago, the Salma Gandhi approached me and they wanted to have a show like that. I had also had an idea to put together an exhibition of the four remaining artists of the Realist Group show. I had arranged uh, a, a, a graphic uh, online Thing to show people how it would show X amount of, of, of current work compared to photographs at, a, at, a, at a, a kind of an entry or an entrance that would show photographs of the work in the exhibition that was put out in 1961. And here four surviving members of it, well, there are now only two surviving members uh, of that group of 12 people. 
you and Harvey, right? Yeah. Who were the other two that that? Uh, Daniel, uh, David Levine, and Aaron Schickler. Uh, I love Aaron Schickler's work. Yeah, he's great. It would have been a fun show, you know, something. Uh, and they, Aaron was always opposed to the idea of any kind of group show. And I think he disapproved of, of, of both Harvey and myself. <laughs> but he reluctantly agreed to take part. It became a little difficult as, uh, as the final solution approached for him. But he, <laughs> he, 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 he was, I think, the, again, every artist wants to show the work that they've done. And even if it's this right here, you know, I'm pleased for a couple of people to see it. Whoever occasionally comes into the studio and so on. So, but the work satisfies me. So I say it's kind of intuitive to have something around that has no home aside from your own. Because my kids downstairs are going to have a hell of a problem. The studio is packed with paintings that are either left over, a lot of the things that were uh, either unsold or unfinished or just accumulated. There's no artist our age, when I say our hobby, my age, certainly, who is not suddenly overwhelmed with the prospect of leaving 40 paintings around for people to, what do I do with this? That son of a bitch, why do I feel funny lovely? <laughs> hey, I'll take him. <laughs> you said something that struck me as quite interesting, and certainly in light of the time that you sort of came of age in and stuff, you were talking about this work for solo show feels unsellable. Like the the painting of your friend back there without any trousers on and stuff. It's like, what does it mean to pursue unsellable art when you know that it is? Because I think there's a bit of integrity behind something like that. And I think about, you said that show in 1961 with you, Harvey, Levine, Schickler, like that wasn't the popular art in 1961, figurative work. And it seems like your whole career, you've had a bit of a, a vision that might not have coincided with the, the zeitgeist perfectly, but you've always pursued your vision. You it know? Was, the problem was it was hard. I had a succession of three galleries here in New York, starting in, in the late 90s and going up through 2006 or 2007. And uh, I was um, only very, very modestly successful in selling work out of the galleries. Uh, I, I, I fared better at getting work in museum collections, as a matter of fact. But it was, it, it, I would sell. Like, not enough to sustain the dealer uh, who increasingly encounter, especially in New York, rental problems were onerous. The, the, uh, 
there's a, a, a gallery I first had a lot of good success with called the Wonderlic Gallery. It was uh, it had a, a long life, except he started to run into sale problems that didn't, he was on 57th Street, you know, and not a luxurious space. It wasn't like a, a what you call a Marlboro, which occupied like four hangar, airplane hangars of, of gallery space. Uh, but increasingly, the economics of real estate in this city overtook a lot of the galleries. Uh, and it makes their choice of artists almost dependent on how well they produce. So it's really, you know, it's a retail shop. Right. If you, you got to make the right shoes to fill the store, right? Yeah. For something like yeah. that. And it, if some item is not good, we'll, we'll get a different item. When I look over my shoulder, he's doing very well over there. You know, I'll, I'll get some of the stuff that looks like his stuff. Right. And it's, and it's very rare. The last gallery I had was with a guy who was really a, a wonderful, and he really had a, a very good eye about painting. And he loved all the art that he represented. Uh, and it was a gallery called the Haynes Gallery. He, he had a place up in Maine. And then he opened the shop in downtown, uh, where is it? Uh, what's it called the, like the home of country music. What's the city? Oh, Nashville. Nashville. Yeah. And he had a gallery right in the middle of what was a very active, popular space, paid a lot of rent for it. And then he began to experience the same thing. He had to close the gallery and, and shunted it off to, to another dwelling, a home that he owned, where he could show work on appointment and so on. But it was out of, out of sight. It was in a... In a I mean, he, he carried my work for over 12 years. He, maybe he sold in that time, he sold about four or five paintings. A, and a couple of them for, for very decent prices, you know. But, uh, but my, by and large, the marketplace was the wrong place. You know, he had to do it by personal encounter. So that's a, a, a very difficult site. But it was wonderful because he stored about 20 paintings that I didn't have to worry about back here in the studio. And I kept telling him, I said, Gary, you know, you'd be really more than generous. I mean, I don't know how you see. He says, listen, I love having those paintings around. I love showing them. So, you know, that's the best environment that I could think of for, for a dealer. And and the the sad thing was he was not an old guy. He was in his mid late sixties, and he died of COVID. That was the closest thing to the up until recently. So I, sad, but. 
I'm, I've accommodated to the idea that this is what I want to do, and I don't care what happens to it in terms of, of, of exhibition space. The energy that I would have put into to organizing and going after doing a, a, a show with Harvey, uh, and I talked about it with him, he's sort of not enthusiastic about it himself. I don't know why. Uh, but the idea of of initiating something it seems onerous. Seems like an enormous. It seems like my but, but doing the marathon. Like... 20, 20 years ago, twenty years ago, I organized a, a comprehensive uh, uh, retrospective exhibition at three museums. And I organized the book to publish with it. And then I was only 70 years old. But if it came to you, like if you didn't have to do anything, Judith, would you show the work that you have right now? Yeah, I could consider. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, so I, Marshall mentioned the word integrity, which is kind of something that, that comes to mind when I look at your work anyway, and always has. But how do you feel How do you feel about that word? How do you feel about like that as connected to you? The only thing I could say is it was interesting that somebody did a, a uh, connected with the art students, they also did a, 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 an online version of Linnea, the magazine, and they interviewed Harvey and myself. And they, they, one of the questions, what do you value in somebody's, in, some, in, in painting? What do you look for in another artist's work? And that word came up in, in an interesting way. Yes, it was one called honesty, and the other was called, yes, I think we got it. But it was two words. It wasn't integrity. You know, and so, but it meant the same thing. Uh, and I think that's really the best. Look, we talked about the gallery world and supporting yourself as a visual artist and how you, and what's available for you to do that. Uh, and it's always easy to compromise. And it's always easy because necessity makes it so. So people keep painting the same thing because that's what was successful before. And if I do the same painting, it's always trying to reinvent it in a way, to try to make it a, a different. It may deal with similar feelings, similarly, similar sense of the world, but it has to be something special visually that makes it work, that makes it viable. But, so you've managed to live this kind of wonderful life where you spent the last 70 years doing the things that you want to do while maintaining integrity. And I don't know what, what else came with it. And you, you know, and I'm sure you had your troubles, but but you've you've done these two things that seem so incredibly important. Uh, would you have any, like if someone came to you and said, Bert, I, I want to do what you did. Like, I want to be able to have a life painting and not compromising on my standards. What advice would you have for them? I would ask a question. 
I said, if I offered you an alternative, would that be acceptable? But I offered you an alternative to do something you're not doing because I thought it was really, it would be more successful. Would you do that? And that's the only advice I could give in the sense, testing somebody's sense of themselves and why they're doing what they're doing. So I don't know if I've answered your question really, but it it's a it's difficult to know if somebody's giving you genuine advice, saying, listen, you know, all the things you think you've been doing with this thing are not working. You know, and here's why they're not working. I mean, if I dealt with it on a, uh, and I would be very reluctant to to be a critic of anybody's work. But if somebody asks me, what do you think? I'm like, hey, I say, do you want me to tell you something that'll make you feel good? Or do you want me to tell you something that I really feel about? You know, did you ever know um, Martha Erlbacher? Oh, Martha? Yeah. Yes, no, I met her very peripherally. Uh, I didn't know, really know. You know, she, she was one of my teachers in graduate school and she had this brutal honesty. And I remember at some point she was looking at a drawing I was working on and she kind of squinted and she was like, you know, Dina, you have really no sense of form at all. And then she looks at a little more and she's like, and you have no sense of color either. Like, like your sense of color really bad. And then she looks at it some more and she's like, and your shadows, your lights and shadows, they're, they're all off. Like you really have, and she just goes on, on like that for about 20 minutes and it was in front of the entire class. And, um, and <laughs> And and at some point she said, "No, no, no. You know, you, you know what though? So I I was 22. I went home and cried uh, because that's what 22 year olds do. But for the rest of my time in graduate school, all I wanted was I mean, was uh, um, it was the New York Academy of Art. Um, but all I wanted oh. was her approval. Really, she 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 was like that, but she taught me so much without you know without being afraid to." tear me apart or tear anyone else apart. And I still think of her as one of pro- probably one of the best teachers that I've ever had. I seem to enjoy a reputation being a great teacher too. And uh, I try to avoid those kinds of circumstances, you know, where somebody asks me, I would deal structurally with, with artwork, right? I think it would be better if you considered the alternative. Okay, instead of saying something, oh, that's terrible drawing, and say, maybe you didn't look at something more carefully, or the relationship of that portion of light struck image with the, the adjacent value. It doesn't come across as, as you branded it. I don't get that feeling. So maybe you ought to reconsider looking at it again. Uh, so, and I tended to avoid those kinds of, of, what do you really think about this? You know what? It was exactly what I, it was a very long half hour of my life, that, that critique, but um, it was actually. I, I, let me ask you a dumb question. You're still painting? I'm, I'm still painting. I mean, it's what I do full time. Oh, I didn't, I, yeah, that was my, it sounded like a dumb question because I wasn't familiar with the work. And I don't know your work either, Marshall. So I kind of have to do background stuff on it. But the, the last 
week, I've been dealing with very important issues, plumbing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at the beginning of this, you were kind of saying that you don't feel like painting is valued a lot currently. Why do you think culture, what painters want to do and what culture wants to see, these values are so misaligned right now? What do, you, what do you think that is? You know, I haven't put it together coherently in a way. Uh, what's even contradictory is the, the enormous money values that are now uh, attached to art. It's drawn a lot of people to become artists. Uh, Forty years ago, when when paintings didn't sell for nearly that, um, or, or the auction prices didn't approach these bizarre, uh, unreal levels, it, it it somebody said, you know, the repeated kind of of, of cliche. It's the economy, stupid. Well, business and business models do pervade in a capitalist society. And people are drawn to things which may seem to be very lucrative and very compensatory. So how to put it together in a reasonable way is that I think the larger issues have to do with uh, how enjoyment, how popular enjoyment is, is, has changed. Uh, for example, in uh, a lot of contemporary rock music, which I listen to, which is like the equivalent of, of non-object painting, you hear it's, it's the contemporary equivalent of, of recitative, you know, with that, the aria that comes along with it. At least in opera, you used to get a tune after you got all the ha la 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 that level. So what you have now are storytellings, you know, accompanied by some unbelievably annoying beat. <laughs> And it's it, so. What's the sensation involved? What's the I see? I, I mean, there's a disconnect. Where do I? Where? How come I don't like that? You know, you're living today. You're alive. Uh, so, I'm looking for the aria, which is is again. It's it's the fusing of means and ends that the music becomes an accompaniment for the sensibility, for the thought that the opera really enjoys. Uh, And I think it requires time. So much of our world is now stimulus-oriented that you don't have time for a lot of looking, right? Oh, I saw that. That's cool. Or I heard that. Yeah, I saw that movie. Great. And so, temperamentally, we're geared to instant gratification and instant stimulation. And it has to be sequential. Can't stop. 
Because once you stop, I mean, you get very nervous. Because what am I feeling? I don't, I'm not, I, I don't have a sensation. I go out and look at the trees with the sun on it. You know, that, that's sort of fun. Am I making sense? I, I, I really... Uh, you make it absolute sense. It's like, I, I love painting and, and I find maybe like you feel people don't love it the same way that I do. Cause I think that it is so personal and, and paintings can get so strange in a way that other art forms really can't. And I wonder if it's a problem of people looking or like you're saying, looking and always distracted because you do have to spend a little time, but once you see like you really, like in a way, your paintings, I see those and I, I hadn't met you before, but I know you from looking at those, you know, I, and, and I have a pretty good sense of, of who you are. And through this conversation, it seems borne out in that. And I'm fascinated with that. How does someone get themselves into the paint? Some do it better than others, of course. Um, but there's still this feeling that that's a medium that people's personality and life gets inside in a really beautiful way if we look at them, you know, that I, that, um, I find utterly fascinating. It's like one that people really can't hide from themselves in it, you know? You know, when I watch news programs and I see a lot of people who come on for one reason or another, I keep looking at their faces Aside from what my particular prejudice or bias might be about what they represent, and it usually is, is somebody who's very out front about it in some way, either both the, either liberal or what's called conservative, but I call it neo-fascist. Uh, and I'm sure it colors my judgment, but I've noticed that pervasive downturn of this lipless face that usually turns out to be a negative person. I have no idea whether that's a superficial judgment or whether it's governed by who I know, but it's something happens about the way your face operates in, in, in relation to other people. How, how, what does your look like? Do you? Uh, it's a lot of different little cues to to making something happen. To make and it's a superficial thing, and it's very transient in terms of it could vary because sometimes I look at uh, Bernie Sanders' face and I see someone who's a quite engaged. It's called a quetch. Someone who's complained about things. All his life, he's a quetch. You know, there's this German, um, a, kind of a fairy tale that I was completely obsessed with as a, as a child. It was called uh, Tim Taller and the Lost Laugh. And it was about this, you know, little boy growing up poor in Germany, but he has this completely infectious laugh. And one day he goes to the racetrack 
and a, a lipless gentleman in, in a trench coat comes up to him and he, he makes a deal with him. He says, you know, I will give you the ability to win any bet, you know, for anything. But what you have to give me is, is your laugh. And, you know, because he's like a 10-year-old kid, he, he makes a deal with someone who is obviously a very suspicious person and, you know, possibly has like horns under his hat and all sorts of other kind of demonic traits and whose name, at least I read the Russian translation, actually spells, spells devil backwards. But, you know, the, uh, but, and then he spends the rest of the book trying to get his laugh back and basically chasing the devil and then trying to figure out how he can kind of, you know, how he can reverse the deal. Because it turns out that his, la his life, even with the ability to have as much money as he wants and win, you know, by, by winning any bet that he uh, wants, uh -huh. his life becomes intolerable. Just, just by kind of, you know, having a grim facial expression and having people predisposed to dislike him as opposed to the, the, you know, kind of his previous life where everyone is predisposed to like him just because he laughed a lot. And, you know, as a spoiler, uh, you know, he gets it back at the, at the end. Yes. Yes. And, and the devil walks away a completely broken man. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, it's, it's an interesting parallel. Yeah. But what you're talking about, you're right. We judge people so much based on just it's a turn of their mouth. It's, it, it's just a feeling I, I, I get. And sometimes it's contradicted uh, by, by who they really are. So you can be led astray by those super super. You know, uh, somebody asked me why you, uh, when I do uh, commission portraits, and I have a certain way of, of, of starting a portrait because I don't know two things. I don't know who this person is, what they really look like. And I don't know if they're, if I want to try to paint somebody who's uninteresting. Uh, in which case I would resort to a formula to get a, a painting done. But I sit and talk to people for two or three hours. I do a lot of drawings because I find that I'm not sure what this person a looks like or what they want to look like. So we have an interesting issue at first. There's the sense of identity that the subject has. And I, I often say to them, let's start out by telling you, you don't really know what you look like. Because it's environmental, it depends on where. It depends on what kind of light is on your face. It depends on whether it's a, a flashbulb from a camera, which you might often see and feel very delighted by because it eliminates all the forms in your face, a lot of which are unpleasant. Or, do you, or, or is it also governed by what you want to think you look like? Do you think uninteresting people exist or everyone becomes interesting if you look at them and talk to them and get to know them kind of well enough? Well, it, what it does is it changes two things. It changes the, the, the camera view and it changes the subject's sense of themselves. All of the portraits that I do are, are really not within the formula 
of concurrent portrait painting, which relies on two things, on resemblance and affability. Somebody has to look very pleasant and be exactly how we all know who it is. And, and it doesn't matter whether the posture is, is, is more interesting or whether the environment is the same, same characteristic. So I make mistakes. The paintings I do often are not exactly who people look, you know, you could photograph them. You didn't do it right. You know, the, the cheek is not right or the eye doesn't right. But almost universally, the people I painted are, are kind of re-informed about themselves. I hate to sound like I've made some magical conversion, but and and then it's confirmed because the reception that a painting gets is is a reinforcement of it. It's not just the mechanical thing. People come up to say, uh, apart from the unveiling, you know, I just saw your portrait, terrific painting of you, and they suddenly say, but I don't look that way, but they recognize me anyway. You, I think a lot of the people listening to this would be, aspire to the type of life you've had, this beautiful life and full of art. We already mentioned integrity and these things that are, seem so rich and, and fulfilling. Um, would you would you have done anything different in terms of career? Yeah, first of all, I'm a, a, a devious illustrator by reputation as well. I mean, real life, authentic illustrator. And it was two things. It was enormously sustaining from a, a point of for money point of view when paintings were selling for 250 bucks a pop. And it was also uh, a conflict because it was somehow rather disreputable for, for being a fine artist to also being an illustrator. Illustration was a dirty word and it still is. It's fascinating, it's still, Still there. The idea of actually representing an, an identifiable event outside of your gut is somehow rather a destruction of the pure symbol of art. And, and the thing was, I didn't really recognize how useful it was as an illustrator and how grateful I ought to have been because I was given recognition far beyond what was certainly what was happening for me as a painter. Listen, I'm in the Hall of Fame alongside of Norman Rockwell. You know? <laughs> I think that's cool. I, I like that. <laughs> I like it too. I, it's, it's amazing all you've accomplished. And, and the irony of it is, I did a record album cover back 55, almost 1970, it's, it's 30, 20, 52 years ago. I'll stop you right here because 
I saw it in the record store not three days ago. I passed by. I know which one you're talking about, but go ahead. I just wanted to say that it's still out uh, there. By a rock group called the Jethro Tull. It's an English group. Yep. And it was one of their first albums that has survived now. It still had, it has just the anniversary. It's like the classic rock album of all time. And I did a painting of an old man huddled in the front, you know, and, 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 and he was the, the lead figure in this, in, in a lot of their songs. And, and it's, it's amazing how, I've copied, you did that, you did that, wow. <laughs> That's my equivalent of the night watch, you see. <laughs> <laughs> it's great, and it's still in all the stores. And, and it was a throwaway. I mean, I did it under great duress. It was, uh, they, they needed the, the, the cover in a hurry. <clears throat> the guy who hired me, I don't know, he found me, because some art exhibition, and he thought it'd be great to have that on a cover of an English rock album. I'm not sure what guided him. It was one of those weird kinds of circumstances. Everybody's life has some bit of weird luck attached to it. You know, it's, uh, and it was not only a throwaway, but I thought it was kind of awful. When I looked back on it years later, I said, Jesus, this club's terrible thing. And it's it survived to become part of a, 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 a card game that, oh, what's the name of it? That's uh, a quiz. My daughter was traveling in Europe 20 years ago, and she was in England with a party, and they had a word game equivalent of, uh, you know, there's some clues and who did X or who did Y or who was something, some popular hero. And one of the cards was who painted the cover of Aqualon? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and she won that game? <laughs> See, That's no there is, there's fame and there's fame, I want to tell you. <laughs> but but that, was, that was my problem. I had uh, 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 a, a very satisfying kind of career as a painter because I wound up doing portraits for Time magazine covers, which was as, just as valid as doing it for some institution, uh, even though they were derived from photographs. Because somehow, look, I, one of the nicest, nicest, the, the most satisfying criticisms I received was from the former head of uh, uh, editor of the New Yorker, uh, who was a, a very strange man because <laughs> he seemed like somebody out of a of a, a cartoon strip. He was anyway, I, I suddenly forgot his name, which is of course is awkward for a podcast and I should remember it because it's something that goes in and out of memory. And don't worry, you'll experience that too. <laughs> uh, and he wrote a review, which he said in like 10 sentences, something that's never been said about my work in print, that is. 
And he said uh, that even though they were accompanying a, a, an article that was for uh, something, a feature called Profiles in the New York, it's discontinued long since. He said, and it was a whole um, biography all in its own. The drawing, the portrait, a little drawing, and with very bad reproduction. Something came through to him that for him was uh, a, a, a very important special quality, not only as an editor, but just because uh, he responded to it as a, as a human being. And, it, and I thought of them as problematic for many reasons, mostly because I had a short amount of time to do it, and I always insisted on uh, working from life. I did not want to have somebody send me photographs of somebody. And it was also an occasion to meet a lot of interesting people. Uh, you know, somebody like uh, this great physicist, I.I. Rebbe, rabbi, actually, or rabbi, not actually, she's like a, uh, I can't, I don't know whether he got the, the uh, Nobel Prize, but I think he was, he was a Nobel physicist. Uh, you know, and you sit in a room with interesting people, and, you have, and another guy was an admiral who formed a, a still existent magazine, which is uh, critical of the of the whole military establishment. And it, and uh, he, as a matter of fact, he commanded a goddamn aircraft carrier in the Korean War, and oh no, the Vietnam War, and he became uh, uh, an activist because of it, because he thought it was such a terrible event. So he went and formed this, this magazine, which examined Pentagon spending and how it was rife with corruption and, and duplication and bad planning, and it's still going on. And it's, it's uh, you know, I sat in a, after the drawing session, I went with him to, to a bar. We spent an hour and a half <clears throat> correcting all the evils of the world. But it was, you know, that kind of experience which you don't normally have, which I, I think is nice to remember. Um, I, I just wanted to say thank you so, so much for talking to us. You're absolutely amazing. And you know, it's nice to, to have smiling faces and interesting questions and so on. And uh, I, I, I want to thank you both. Thank really. you. This was amazing. And thank you for your beautiful work that inspired me from, you know, fairly early and probably changed a little bit of the trajectory of my life to go into more figurative painting. So, oh, listen, listen, you made me feel great. Both hey, thank you for listening and coming along with us on this long journey. I hope you got some good takeaways from this interview. I want to let you know that we have an official Art Crime Podcast hotline now. So call us and let us know what sort of creative projects you have going on during these crazy times. Let us know what's on your mind and we'll play it on our next episode. The number is 929-267-4830. 
Again, it's 929-267-4830. You can find us at artgrindpodcast.com. And follow us on Instagram. And if you feel like supporting us financially, you can easily hit that donate button on our website. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes. That will really help us. We love all the support we get from our listeners and hope to do our best to bring you more great interviews for you. So be safe out there and stay on the grind.